The following audio is from Solid Rock Community Church. More information about Solid Rock Community Church is available at www.solidrockcommunitychurch.com. Good morning. Good to see you. Again, I commend uh, Pastor Lincoln, Pastor Troy, the lead pastor of New Life Church in uh, uh, Renton. And they are friends of mine, and I've known Troy for many, many years. And he is a trustworthy, lovable guy. I know you will enjoy being a part of what God's doing through new life. And that you will bring something special that God wants to bring through Solid Rock and its membership. You know, uh, on Mother's Day, I can't... I think I preached here on Mother's Day last year, did I? Yes. I think so. Did, did I, Alex? Yeah, <laughs> he knows. He's like God. On the, he has all of my records. He keeps them meticulously. I should have asked him. But uh, yeah, I preached on Mother's Day last year. I got to thinking about it. And uh, I read a poem to you that I have read every year uh, that since I left home when I've had opportunity to be in the pulpit. It was a poem that my mother uncovered. It was authored by a lady named Alice E. Chase. And I went off to Bible school, and I meant to bring my old Northwest University Bible that I used. It was a huge thing. In those days, they judged your faith by the size of your Bible. And, uh, <laughs> and so I, would, uh, I opened it up to do devotions one morning, and my mother had snuck away with my Bible before I left and pasted this poem in the front leaf, flyleaf of the Bible. Uh, it's really tattered and worn now. The, uh, the poem itself is hard to read, the copy that's in my Bible, but I've made a copy, and in fact, I've left a few with Alex in case some of you moms want to pick it up or leave your email address and we'll send it to you. Uh, before I read this poem, I always read another poem that was written by my brother Brian in 1968. He's uh, just about two years my junior and uh, he was to write a Mother's Day poem in Sunday school. Now, he's a builder. He's not a writer. Let me just preface with that comment. And here was the poem that for years we have quoted from my brother. Mom, I think you are nice for giving me a nice meat slice. <laughs> you know, the basics. Mom takes care of the basics. Sometimes you are mean, but I'm glad that you are clean. <laughs> Your loving son, Brian. So if you ever meet my brother Brian, ask him about his Mother's Day poem. Um, and so that contrasts with this more well-written, finely-tuned poem by Alice E. Chase. A Mother's Prayer. If I could plan your voyage on life's uncertain sea... Your ship would sail a steady course as tranquil as can be. I'd steer away from rock-bound coasts and keep you free from shoals. I'd bypass stormy weather that might upset your goals. But mothers aren't in command. We haven't any say. When sons pull up the anchor and boldly sail away, we only look to heaven and ask the Lord above to navigate the vessel that bears the one we love. 
So here I read that 14 years after my mom went to join Jesus in heaven. I've read it every year for 40 years, 45. And like last week, we talked about the cycle of grief. Here I am standing up here on Mother's Day, and today, freshly, grieving. Not in the same way I did the day after Mom died, but I still think of her often, and I still grieve the loss. And God draws alongside of me, because his promise is, he will be close to the brokenhearted. The message that I'm going to bring to you today is actually going to be a repeat for some of you. Am I correct, Alex? Did you, did you, did you check that out? I don't know. He's not being quite as boisterous. Maybe he... Yeah. I want to thank Alex publicly. There's a lot of people that will get commendation and for the contributions you've made over the last 20 year, 21 years uh, and in between. But uh, Alex, week to week, back there in the tech booth, really has done a terrific job. I travel to a lot of places, go to different churches. Alex is always proactive. He texts me or emails me with uh, the question, you know, do you have something for me or can you get it to me by such and such a time? And he's always so faithful to get it back for proofing before we go to press, so to speak. And uh, Alex, I want to publicly appreciate you. Uh, Larry and Dale, who are the two primary tech guys on the soundboard, but assisted by many others. We know who's really in control of the services. <laughs> it's the tech board. And uh, Terry and Stuart, who I know best, but Forrest as well, and others who may assist you in the security detail. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Sorry. <laughs> and I know that God will continue to use all of you as he plugs you in in new ways to bless his kingdom and his kingdom's people. Anyway, this message for some of you I believe, and with the confirmation of Lord Alec back there, Alex back there, <laughs> is a repeat for Solid Rock. I wrestled with the idea of doing a, a repeat message for you, and some of you weren't here that day, so it'll be fresh to you. I couldn't even pinpoint the date that I gave it. Uh... It's a message that I preached at a minister's conference about 15 years ago. And I've been asked to pull it back, and I did pull it back with a sense of direction from the Lord when I preached it here, I think, last year. I, do, I didn't realize when I delivered it then 
that it would be prophetic in a sense. And at the minister's retreat, when I preached this some 15 years ago or so, well, maybe 10 years ago it was at the minister's retreat, a young couple, very with fear and trepidation, came to Doris and me afterward, and they did what sometimes preachers uh, dread. I think the Lord wants me to tell you something. You know, the Lord told me to tell you. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. And so your heart kind of starts beating and you're going, okay, is this real or not real? Are these people on target? Are they not on target? And with really through tears and a kind of a shaky voice, the young minister said, this message that you have preached to us tonight, you will have to apply on a personal level in the next three to five years. So that tells me, remembering the story, this was about 10 years ago. The message is entitled, The Order of Change. And the text from which it is drawn is Genesis 1. There's little disagreement uh, that we live in a day of unprecedented change. No matter what our age group And uh, no matter what our age group, no matter what our station in life, change is occurring in unprecedented fashion all around us. And it's hard to keep up with. And the older we become and the more petrified we become in our ways, the harder it is to deal with that change. Daniel prophesied of the end times in Daniel 12.4 when he made this statement. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Speaking of the last days. Now you just think about the truth of that statement today, compared even to a hundred years ago, that you can hop on a plane and on the same day, like I did just a couple weeks ago, fly to Dallas for a meeting, meet for a few hours, get on the plane, and be back home that night. An unthinkable uh, uh, accomplishment a hundred years ago. Men shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. The global mobility and the availability of information that we all take for granted as world citizens is in and of itself a fulfillment of prophecy about the rapidity of change that we will face. Josh McDowell, does that name ring a bell with anybody? He wrote the book, Evidence Demands a Verdict. He's considered to be even yet America's oldest youth pastor. About 25 years ago, I heard him preach a message to a group of ministers, and he made this statement. If you do not stay current, you will be obsolete as a minister of the gospel in five years. And I walked out of that hall that day and said to myself, what am I going to do to stay in the mainstream of what God is saying to his church because I certainly do not want to become obsolete as a preacher of the gospel. In uh, 1998, a couple of professors from Beloit College in Beloit, Wisconsin set out to put together what has been called 
the Beloit College Annual Mindset List. And every year for the last 21, and this is the last year, by the way, that it will be done under the name Beloit College Mindset List. But you can go back and look at all of them. They're going to publish it now under an independent uh, website. It was designed to help professors think about the fact that the incoming college freshmen that they will be addressing are coming from a totally different paradigm or perspective than the professor who's teaching them. He wanted, uh, these professors wanted people to think about things at least for a moment in the way that the incoming class of freshmen is thinking about things, their worldview, their mindset. And that hopefully making them a more effective professor. Think about it. The class of, of 2022 that entered college last year, by and large, was born in the year 2000. See, we never faced that before either. <laughs> All those students born in year 2000 and beyond uh, never have seen alive in their lifetime, nor would recognize the name perhaps, like Victor Borga, Charles Schultz, and Alec Guinness, who played the original Obi-Wan Kenobi. Among their classmates could be Madonna's son, Rocco, Will Smith's daughter, Willow, or David Bowie's daughter, Alexandria. They're the first class born in the new millennium, and they've escaped the dreaded label of millennial through their new designation, which they've yet to agree on, by the way, iGen, Gen Z, whatever. Outer space has always been inhabited by humans. They've always been able to refer to Wikipedia. They've grown up afraid that a shooting could happen at their school, too. When filling out forms, they're not surprised when they find more than two gender categories listed. They've grown up with stories about where their grandparents were on that fateful day in Dallas, 11-22-63, and where their parents were on 9-11. The words Veritas and Horizon have always been joined together to form the familiar brand Verizon. They'll never fly TWA, Swiss Air, or Sabina Airlines and I've flown all of those. The Prius has always been on the road in the United States. They never used a spit bowl in a dentist's office. <laughs> a visit to the bank, if ever, has been a rare event. They've never had to deal with chads unless it happens to be a friend they know, <laughs> be they dimpled, hanging, or pregnant chads. And some of you know what that is. Mass market books have always been available exclusively as e-books 
Oprah has always been a magazine, Google Doodles have never recognized major religious holidays. Chernobyl has never produced any power in their lifetime. They've always, there's always been more than a billion people in India. Films have always been distributed on the internet through streaming and other means. Israeli troops have never occupied southern Lebanon. And the last one I'll read is Donnie and Marie who? <laughs> who just, by the way, set aside their Las Vegas act and retired as a brother and sister entertainment combo. Change. In the Bible account of Genesis 1, we read that God created the heavens and the earth, that very familiar first book of the first book, uh, chapter of the first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, what happened on day one? What did he create? Light and darkness separated them. Day two, heavens and earth separated the firmament. Day three, dry land and vegetation came forth. Day four, lights in the heavens, sun, moon, stars. Day five, nobody wants fish, that's right. There's a fisherman right there. Yeah, fish. <laughs> Day six, land animals and man. And what did he do on day seven that we rarely do? <laughs> Rest. These verses actually, one day when I was reading through them many years ago, it dawned on me, they taught me something about the relationship between God and his creation, but also between God and change. And in our consideration and interaction with change, it's been helpful for me to consider that relationship as I consider the phenomenon of change. God is a God of order. There's an order to creation, the plan of salvation, the people Israel were ordered to join together under ordered leadership. There's order in the Christian home. There's order in the church. In fact, Paul said, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, as he wrote to Titus. The fact that God's a God of order is easily discovered, easily defended from the scriptures, and in one sense illustrated in the unchanging nature of God and his character. God is the only unchangeable force in the universe. For I, the Lord, Malachi the prophet declared, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. James 1.17, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, 
with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He doesn't change even so much as a shifting of the shadow he leaves. And Hebrews 13, 8, which is one of the first verses I memorized as a child because it hung on a plaque that now hangs in my office in my grandmother's home. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes and forever. Yet, this passage in Genesis 1 teaches me that God, the changeless one, created change. Change was a part of God's creative work. He said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years. God started the human time clock as a part of his creative work. The purpose for setting these heavenly bodies in place was actually laid out. The God who never changes created seasons and days and years. Now, if God created change as a normal course of our finite human existence, then why is change so often difficult for me to deal with. If God created me and he created change to be a part of my world, then why did he make me so that I struggle in coping with change? And it seems more challenging with each passing year. Every time they come up with a new software change, my wife will say, honey, quit complaining because she'll hear me in my office. Why did they change this website? I just got used to the old one. <laughs> she goes, honey, don't get petrified. <laughs> Not only did God change, uh, create change and establish time, he promises me as part of his future work in eternity that he's going to do away with time. And it says in Revelation 24 in prophetic fashion, uh, 21, I should say, 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And in another uh, translation it says, and time shall be no more. Change. As I contemplated this idea, God brought three principles to mind that I want to share with you today with a particular focus on the idea of change both for us individually, but again, like last week, in talking about mourning our losses as a normal part of the human experience, with a focus on the changes that are occurring at Solid Rock Community Church. And they are many. The first principle is this. Recognize that change was created by God for my blessing. 
Now, any one of us can think of situations where change is not only welcomed, but heartily embraced. In fact, there are some changes that we crusade for. And how many times I've been preaching, for instance, on something about husbands and wives or friendships and relationships, and a husband or, or wife will hear something that they know does not currently apply to their mate, and the elbow comes over and they jab them even as I'm preaching because they are going, see, you need to change. <laughs> He's even saying it. He even recognizes it, and he doesn't know us. Anyone who's experienced the gift of salvation, restoration of what was a broken relationship with God, will quickly testify how welcomed change was in our lives. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Some of you are praying for children in your family, for brothers and sisters other family members, close friends, and you're actually praying, God, will you enact change in that person's life? Will you change their heart? You're begging God for change. We love testimonies that talk about moving from darkness to light, from bondage to freedom, once lost to now found. Blind Bartimaeus was happy for change. Paul the Apostle was delighted ultimately for change. The teen challenge student that goes in as a, a, a person bound by drugs emerges in victory and they are glorifying God for change. But we must not succumb to the temptation. It's a temptation we all face, that being to embrace change selectively, only as it seems good to us personally. God allows change in our lives in order to stretch my faith, to get me out of my comfort zone. The greatest seasons of growth that I have ever experienced are seasons I never would have chosen myself. I would not have chosen to walk through those valleys of the shadow of death. But God allowed me to walk through those seasons of change because he was stretching me. He was getting me out of my comfort zone. God uses external change as a catalyst to trigger internal changes or heart transformation in my inner man. He is at work to change my heart. And he does it sometimes through the pressure of external circumstances. I pastored in North Seattle at Shoreline Community Church. We were there for 18 years. And... Um, in that 18-year period, we saw many, many changes. We grew from a congregation of about 250 people to a congregation uh, attendance of about 1,500 or more. And uh, we, fig we calculated that uh, even in those days, with Sunday church attendance being a more regular habit, 
that on any given Sunday, we only had about three quarters of our church in attendance. So it was a church easily of 2,000 or more. That change stretched people. And they would come to me, the people who had been there for a long time, and they'd say, Pastor, I know it's wonderful to see so many people coming to Christ and their lives are being transformed, but I don't know everyone anymore. I don't know everyone's name. I used to know everyone's name. And one lady, bless her heart, she came to me and said, or actually to Doris, she said, Doris, do you and Pastor ever get concerned about like the quality of people that God's bringing into our church? <laughs> and Doris, oh, bless her heart, God gave her a word of his wisdom. She said, you mean uh, sinners like you and me? During those se that season of change, especially at the beginning of my lead pastor uh, tenure there, a number of ministers came through as guests, and every one of them preached from the same passage of Scripture in the book of Isaiah. After about the fourth one in a course of six months, these are people unrelated, to, and I never said a word to them about it. They'd stand up and they'd say, the Lord put a verse on my heart to bring to the Shoreline Community Church today. It's from Isaiah 43, verse 19. I could take you back to the Bible that I used while I was pastoring there, which is also worn out, by the way. And I could take you to that section of Isaiah, and you would see the names of every minister that preached from this passage over that period of time. It left no doubt in my mind that God was bringing us into a season of change. He was preparing us for it. And the verse reads like this. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And God began to just, in my mind, Lord, what is this new thing you're doing? It made me anticipate what he was at work to do. The change was being brought to me as a blessing. God never allows change without a purpose, and it will be blessing. The second principle that's helped me is that when everything is getting all blurry because it's going by so fast, it helps me to keep my eyes focused upon the one who never changes. Though all may be changing around me, even in riotous fashion, God is the unchanging one, and he designed it this way because he wants his creation, his people, to to focus on him. He doesn't want us to focus on our circumstances so much as he wants us to focus on him. And it's helped me over the years when change is occurring in my life. And there have been times when, uh, and you've heard our story, you know 
how desperate I became even five years ago through uh, events in my own life that I thought I cannot bear this change. And the Lord would say, keep your eyes on me. I'm trying to get you to keep your focus on me. You lost your focus. Psalm 46, 1 to 5 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. I think it's... The reason that hymns like Great is Thy Faithfulness maintain their relevance and popularity generation to generation. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Distractions are common. So much so that the Holy Spirit knew we would need encouragement and guidance. And in the book of Hebrews, he gives us a very poignant direction pertaining to this principle of keeping our eyes focused upon the one who never changes. When he says in Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Some translations, and as I learned it as a boy, say the author and the finisher of our faith. See, he's purposed and he's planned. He's a God of order. If he has this idea of orderliness in mind for all of his creative work and all of the plans he set for man and all the governmental structures that he outlines in the scripture and all of the orders for the church and all of the orders for how we should be living our lives, why would he abandon that order when it comes to you and me in our personal relationship with him? 
he's ordering change, which is the third and final principle that I want to share with you. Trust in the midst of all this change that God is ordering those changes. I often say, I'm glad I serve a God who is never taken by surprise. But I'm glad that he allows me to enjoy the blessing of being surprised. I serve a God who's never surprised, but he allows me to be surprised. Makes life more interesting. The steps of a good man, Psalm 37, 23 says, are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in thy way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I like the New International Translation. If the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his steps firm. Though he stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord holds him up with his right hand. Moms, on Mom's Day, dads, you can join in too. You'll recognize it. If you were involved as God intended with the raising of your children, then one of the things we do is bend over, take hold of their hand when they're toddling, and we walk with them. And they're tugging and pulling and wanting to get away, and they can't even stand up on their own two feet yet, but that's the natural inclination, isn't it? To pull away from that holding back of the right hand of the father, the mother. We're there to protect and guide, and that little baby stumbles along, and the hand gets out, and they tumble to the floor, and we reach down, and I don't know why, we always laugh. <laughs> Wasn't that funny? The baby just fell flat on his face. <laughs> and we help them stand up. And we guide them around the end tables and the coffee table and they fall again and we laugh and pick them up. God's ordering change and he's not just ordering it as a distant observer. He's ordering it as an intimate participant. He, he's taking my hand in the midst of change. He's lifting it up when change causes me to reel and stumble. In light of this, we must caution, talking about change, that we don't want to change just for change's sake. That's not God's design. In this age of prevalent change where change is encouraged, we can fall into a trap, and I see it especially in the lives of young ministers trying to find their way in their own ministry and how they're going to lead, and they want to change everything all at once. They'd come to me as superintendent, and they'd say, give me the one piece of advice that you would give me as a new pastor in this church. And I'd say, 
don't make one single solitary conscious change for at least six months. Because just you walking in the door is going to be so much change for those people. (laughs) You won't even be trying to change things, and you will. So make no conscious changes whatsoever. I can't tell you the number of young ministers who came back to me six months later and said, man, I wished I would have listened to your advice. (laughs) Because they submarined or torpedoed their own efforts by bringing about so much change so soon. Now, as it applies to solid rock, you are going to experience sudden change. It will not be the same. Godly, prayerful, thoughtful men and women have considered this decision. And it's at this point that I have to say, okay, Lord, personalize it now. What are you doing in my life as part of this change Because if I believe what Pastor is saying this morning, then this didn't take you by surprise. I'm going to keep my eyes focused on you because you never change. And I'm going to trust that you are ordering the changes in my life and that they will be a blessing to me. The thing that I find interesting as we talk about this idea of change is that for those of us who are Christ followers, the hallmark of our faith is Jesus came to earth, he lived, he suffered, he died, and he rose again. All involved tremendous change. Philippians 2 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead he emptied himself and took on the form of a man and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' life was nothing but change. And I'm encouraged to have this attitude in me that he had in him. So God, what is it that you're working out? He's working out, ultimately, my salvation for eternity. We live in our, our religion, our faith, is both a here and now faith and a what then faith over here. I'm living here to love Terry as my brother, but Terry, you and I are living with an eye out here too, aren't we? So that the day will come that you and I will be joined together with Jesus in heaven and we will live eternally. That's the gospel. That's that's the good news. We don't have to die 
and be separated from God. We can die an earthly or physical death with the hope of eternal life. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul was uh, uh, addressing people in the church who was saying, well, when you die, you die. You close your eyes, they lay you in the ground, and that's it. There's no resurrection. And Paul spent a whole chapter, chapter 15, talking about the power of the resurrection. And he said, listen, he closed his words with this. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning we will not all die, because they thought Jesus was going to come back before they died. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed from mortal to immortal to flesh to spirit from death to eternal life that is the gospel the gospel is embedded in the idea that we can change God never changes so that you and I can change I hope over the next few weeks as you're contemplating and evaluating how God's using this in your life, all of this transition and change, which is of significance, that you will keep your eyes focused on the author and the finisher of your faith and you'll ask him some really good questions. Lord, what is it you're doing not just in Solid Rock Community Church. What are you doing in me? In me. Could we sing that song you did, Good, Good Father? Could we do that? It just seemed like a good thing to do that. I'm going to pray with you after we sing this chorus again. And uh, I just, I, I really counted a privilege to be walking with you in these last few weeks of the transition. Uh, we didn't plan it this way, really. At the time I was scheduled, this was not uh, being considered and certainly was not finalized. Um, so I really counted a privilege to be with you through this time. And I hope that you consider it and will listen to the voice of the Lord uh, similarly, that it wasn't a mistake that, that I would be able to walk with you. It's just been such a, a personal privilege to be a part of a group of people and to come back and be known. When I travel normally, I walk in, I'm making fresh friends every week. 
And uh, I did it for all those years, 20 years, and then now this 25, when we left our church, and, and it was, oh, it got so tiring. But you know what? I thought I would think, I don't have to go back to Solid Rock, or there's two other churches I do this in as well, Milton and New Hope in Puyallup. And I think, I don't have to go back there. I get to go back there. I'm really looking forward to that. So I will miss this, just as you will miss many things. But I'm saying to the Lord, okay, Lord, what are you doing in me? Because I'm part of this change too. He's a good, good father. And we are good, good sons and daughters in his view. Stand with me and sing it, and then we'll close in prayer together. What a privilege it is to be called sons and daughters of God. And Father, we reach out to you as your children today, especially as a congregation in transition and change, and we lean into your strong right hand to help us. We ask for your divine guidance, insight, strength. We ask for you to help us when we stumble and fall and you pick us up by your right hand. Your father heart toward us is to be celebrated. And on this Mother's Day, we recognize that you not only have a father's heart, God, you have a mother's heart. You talk about it in your word. A heart that nurtures and cherishes and, and strengthens. A heart that protects, broods over her children. A heart that has compassion and sensitivity. A heart that hears the cries of her children. I ask, Lord, that you would demonstrate your fatherhood and your motherhood to us in this time of transition and change. And show us, as we keep our eyes focused on you, what are you about doing in me? I pray blessing upon every mother in this crowd today. And for those who have yet to realize the blessing of motherhood, but have that craving in their heart for whatever reasons, they have not yet experienced it, I pray your blessing upon them. I pray that you would give children to those who have the dream for it and have yet to realize it. I pray for moms who have young children and are nurturing and guiding and directing them. I pray for moms whose children are grown and some who have walked away from the Lord, but moms praying and asking for you to intervene and change their heart. I thank you for moms. In Jesus' powerful name we pray, amen, amen. and amen.